0: invite you to turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah chapter 31, don't be afraid to look up the index at the beginning if you need to, uh, just to find it, some of you are there already, so that's great, (laughs) Jeremiah 31, and a a relatively short passage, um, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer again. Father, as we come to this word, we thank you that you remind us that you are a husband to your people. And you seek to help your people, uh, to husband them and to to encourage them in the right direction. So we pray by your spirit you come to us and teach us and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been doing some... Covenant theology over the last few weeks And we've seen that since the fall of Adam God has continued to reach out in grace To human beings That the God of heaven has always desired To have fellowship with human beings uh, In spite of all their sin And he has done so And continues to, to do so By means of establishing a covenant with people A special kind of relationship with people. And we have been through the kind of relationship that it is in past weeks. And that covenant has gone through a number of administrations, what we call administrations. It's not a Bible word, it's just a a kind of practical word if you like. It's a theological word. Um, It's gone through a number of administrations. And we have followed those administrations. We've seen the, the first administration with Adam in the garden and uh, and then we followed through with Noah and then we've seen the promises made to Abraham, the covenant made with Abraham and then then with Moses and then finally last week we looked at the covenant made with David uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and as we have gone through all those administrations it's not really been a, a different covenant, it's just been that the same covenant has developed and grown. And so the promises become richer and fuller and it's kind of like a plant that grows from seed form in Genesis 3.15 all the way through to Christ uh, in the new covenant which is what we're going to look at now. The, The fullness of the flowering of the plant, if you like. And so it's an organic thing. And so we talk about one covenant of grace although it comes in different administrations. But one of the threads that we have seen uh, as we have followed these administrations is that there are certain ideas that are yet, or promises that have yet to be fulfilled. Uh, So, God spoke about a seed who would come and crush the serpent's head when he spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpents in the garden after the fall. The seed would come. And then when we looked at Abraham, for example... Uh, he's, he was spoke, told of a, a place that he was going to receive a people that was going to come out of his own body uh, and, and descendants uh, and the blessing of God or the presence of God uh, to be with him this idea of God coming to his people to be with, with them and present with them is a, is a constant theme all the way through the Old Testament and uh, as we looked at Moses, we saw those same things. We saw that uh, a place was promised, a promised land. Uh, a people, again, that would inhabit the land. And, uh, you know, those 600,000 men plus all their families that are now with Moses. And, uh, again, they would have the very presence of God in the midst, in the promised land, with all these people. Um, and so the promise develops and grows. And then last time we saw uh, the same pattern with David. That David was promised uh, the place, the land would be at rest. He's the king of a a land that is at rest. A people at rest. uh, And the very presence of God in their midst, in the city, in Jerusalem, that he he has chosen. And wonderfully, in addition to all of that, though of course it's not a new idea. But great clarity comes when God speaks of the king who would come and sit on the throne of David and we saw that that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ but it teaches us that with all of those threads and yet to be fulfilled promises that the, in the Old Testament the covenant of grace is still waiting some sort of consummation not everything has fully worked out yet And especially when you consider what happens after David. Because he's received this great promise of a king who would be on his throne. A son who would sit on his throne forever. And yet you follow the history from David onwards for the next 400 years. And it's all kind of downhill. There's a couple of blips upwards. But it's basically downhill all the way. Until you find that... You know, the tribes of Israel have been separated. So you have a northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north, and the two tribes to the south, uh, Judah and Benjamin. The people have forgotten the promises of God. They've forgotten who God is. That happened quicker in the north because they didn't have Jerusalem in the temple. Uh, But it happened, and they, they started following all the gods of the other nations, Baal worship and worshiping on mountaintops and so on. And it gradually happened more and more in Jerusalem as well. Although they still had the temple. And now in terms of the geopolitics of what's going on around the nation of Israel. You have the tribes be already overrun by marauding empires. So already the northern kingdom, 400 years later, the northern kingdom has been overrun by the Assyrians. And now in the time of Jeremiah, the Assyrians have been vanquished and the Babylonians have come and the Babylonians are on the the threshold of overcoming Judah and Jerusalem. And we find it's a disaster. The whole thing's a disaster. What's happened? They've lost God. They've been separated and scattered and uh, they're about to be overrun by foreign armies. Jeremiah... And amongst many other prophets. With the help of God foresees that all of this is going to happen. And eventually it does happen. That Jerusalem is destroyed in 587 BC. And the people are deported to Babylon. It's actually not the first deportation of, of Jews to Babylon. But it's nonetheless a disaster. And the question that happens is, what has happened to God's covenant in all of this? Has God failed? Have his, has his, have his promises failed? Has God given up in all of this? And it's at this point that God speaks through Jeremiah and others. But through Jeremiah, he says the words that he said, we read earlier. He speaks of something new that is coming. In fact, the whole of chapter 30 and 31 are about the restoration of the people of God. As as one commentator put it, it is a grand hymn of deliverance. And I want to, this morning, walk through these verses with you. And talk about the new covenant Uh, Interestingly, this is the only place in the Old Testament where the phrase new covenant is used. Although there's lots of newness in all the other uh, uh, prophets in different ways. But the first thing I want you to notice is that this new covenant is corporate as well as individual. Now that may seem a strange thing to start with. Corporate rather than individual. It's not just about individuals. Being gathered up into this covenant relationship, but it's actually about a body of people being gathered into uh, into this covenant. And I, I need to emphasize that because if you ask the average evangelical Christian today, uh, what, what is it about the new covenant? Uh, what is it that's new about the new covenant? Many people will say, uh, maybe the most likely answer you'll get is that the new covenant is entirely personal. That is that the idea of God acting towards a body of people is entirely gone in favor of God acting with individuals. Uh, Just to quote R.K. Harrison, a Reformed Baptist writer, he says this, Probably the most significant contribution which Jeremiah made to religious thought was inherent in his insistence that the new covenant involved a one-to-one relationship of the Spirit one of our Baptist friends, writing about 50 years ago. Now, is he right? Is it just now a one-to-one as opposed to corporate in the past? Is it just about you and me and Jesus? If you look at verse 31, you'll see that the covenant is to be made with each person one-to-one, no, it's made with the House of Israel and with the House of Judah. That's referencing the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom. In other words, the New Covenant is with a, a body of people, not simply individuals. And we know this is about the church and I'm not going to dwell on this why Israel and Judah are taken together I mean the church. But just to say that in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, the writer quotes that very verse, but is applying it to the church. So I just leave that there. He's talking about the people of God generally. And then if you look ahead to so look ahead to Jeremiah 32, verses 38, and 39, he's continuing this idea of this covenant relationship. in verse 38. God says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is a great covenant relationship. They shall be my people and I will be their God. In verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Notice not I will give them each heart but I will give them one heart. It's singular. It's one body of people with one way. And then what does he say about that? I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Now the corporate aspect is really important. And when you realize that the new covenant is also a corporate covenant, then you also realize it includes the children of the adults in the covenant, in that body. Now, of course, the new covenant is deeply personal, and we'll come to to that in a moment. But the new covenant does not get rid of the corporate aspect of it. If you do that, you descend into a radical individualism that has the effect of, at best, undermining the significance of the church as a family, and at worst, possibly even denying the, the, the value of the church at all. You, I've met so many Christians who say, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be a member of a church. I can just go to whatever church I feel like. Or not go at all. I'm still a Christian. I had somebody phoned me a couple of weeks ago and said, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. that's one effect you just deny the value of the church but the other effect is effectively jettisoning children from the covenant relationship with that individualism so we need to have think of the new covenant as both personal and corporate and we see those two things as complementary as part of God's gracious arrangement as we're thinking about God's covenant with people and it's really important that we think corporately because when you come to the new testament and you describe how Christ has saved people and what the the nature of the relationship is in Romans chapter 5 Paul compares Adam on the one hand and all the many of humanity in Adam Then he compares him with Christ and all the many who are in Christ. And it's a reminder that fundamentally God's gracious covenant is actually made with Christ we looked at that a few weeks ago, but it's actually as people are gathered into Christ that they are incorporated into the covenant the covenant blessings of God. So it's really important we get that in our minds. The covenant is made with God, uh, by God with Christ, the incarnate son of God, and us in him. That's what our confession says. So the corporate aspect is vitally important. If we only focus on the personal without the corporate, then we tend to individualism and it's dangers. If we only focus on the corporate without knowing the personal, then we tend towards presumption. What do I mean? Where you presume that because you're a member of the church or you, you attend a church, you have that blessing of those covenant blessings, even though you may not personally know God, know Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's a problem constantly in churches. People are part of a church and attend a church, but they don't personally know God. Let me move secondly on to, I'm just working my way through this, this text then. Now let me move on secondly to think about the heart and the place of the law in the new covenant. God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, verse 33. And notice here, their hearts is now plural, so it's individuals. And it's Personal. And let me just say something about the heart and what's going on, uh, what's going to happen in the new covenant. Here, here, Jeremiah talks of the heart like it's something you write upon, you, know, you scribble on. And it's like a piece of paper. And God is in the business of writing something on that piece of paper, as it were, or tablet, as they did in the old days. And the reason becomes clear. Uh, when you look at some of it, what the other prophets say about what will happen to hearts under the new covenant, now Ezekiel thirty-six speaks of this new covenant arrangement without using the phrase "new covenant," but you, it's the same thing. In Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, he says, "I will, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit; I will put within you." And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, Ezekiel points out the radical change that will happen to individuals in contrast to what went before. Their hearts become fleshly and soft rather than hard and stony. And if they were like stone, you know, nothing could be done with them. That's, that's the, the idea. But when God softens them, then He can do something with the heart. And He changes the heart. What does God write then into that heart, that new, softened heart? Well, He says, My law. My law. All His commands. Now this is an interesting note of continuity with the old old covenant. That uh, the new covenant doesn't get rid of the law. The new covenant actually uh, firmly affirms the law. And this time the law comes to us with deeper uh, power and application in the new covenant. God is not dispensing with Moses. And perhaps especially, he's thinking about the Ten Commandments. He's not dispensing with the Ten Commandments. Which were written, of course, on tablets of stone. And were outside the hearts of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. So they could go and look at it externally, but it wasn't yet in their hearts. But now, under the New Covenant, there is this radical change brought about by the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden... What do you find in people who have been affected by the Holy Spirit and their hearts have been softened? What do you find? You find that suddenly they're interested in doing what God wants. Their law is written on their hearts. And they begin to see their sin and they begin to say, I've got to stop doing that and I've got to start doing this. Because I love God. <laughs> the law is written on your heart. When you read it, you know, in the pages of Scripture, externally, your heart leaps because you think that's for me those commands are for me because I'm a Christian I'm a new creature in Christ this is how the the word of God comes into us God writes it upon our hearts this is one of the sure signs that somebody has come into the, the blessings of the new covenant not simply that they've had some sort of ecstatic experience, though they may have had that, but that out of the heart they desire to do what God has commanded. This is the sign that somebody has been truly converted to Christ. And it may be an imperfect desire, because your sin is still there, but that desire cannot be stopped, because you now have this heart of flesh and god has done the work of be- of writing that law into your heart and he's changed you and made you a new man a new woman a new girl a new boy and i wonder if that's happened to all of you today have you been changed by god has your heart become flesh soft flesh so that he can write in it or is your heart still hard towards god you want to ignore him you can't wait to get away from here for example I don't know I can't see into hearts God can but he can do it he can change your heart make you a new person so that's the heart and the law third thing the covenant promise of fellowship see in verse 34 God says I will be their God and they will be my people Now this is a great statement of covenant relationship between God and his people. Um, This is what God wants with his people. He wants to be their God and for them to be his people. To be in fellowship with them. And it's what God has always wanted. Remember God walked with Adam in the garden of Eden. He shared fellowship with Adam. When God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, what did he do? He said he gave chapters and chapters describing how the tabernacle is supposed to be made why? so that the tabernacle could be at the very centre of the camp of Israel so that's where God is going to live and dwell amongst his people and when they came to a stop you know, they'd set the tent up in the middle and all the tribes in in the right order would encamp all around and in the middle is God because God wants to be with his people God condescending to come down to his people and when Israel had settled in the land under David what what about God well God called Solomon his son to build the temple a temple fit for the, the Shekinah glory of God and he wanted to be at the center of national life but even that is not the final place for God it's too local was too restrictive, and so he was to come. God was to come as a man, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, to walk on this earth. And that after his death and his resurrection, which we'll come to in a moment, he would then send his spirit out into the world. And where does the spirit dwell? two ways of saying the same thing firstly he dwells in the body of God's people the corporate aspect of it 1 Corinthians 3.16 the spirit you are the temple and God dwells in that temple the church but then later he says he dwells in your hearts too so it's personal and corporate the Holy Spirit but it's no longer limited to a a place a, a particular geographical location But it's wherever there's a church, wherever there are Christians, this is where God dwells. God has baptized his church with his spirit, and his spirit is present in the hearts of all believers everywhere. You see, God wants fellowship with men and women, boys and girls, not because he needs you, because he is utterly self sufficient. And self-contained and happy in himself. He doesn't need us. No, but he wants to share of himself with his people. He wants to share his glory with you. That you and I, we may live in the fullness of joy and fellowship with him. That's the kind of God we have. And this is what the new covenant brings with new power and force. The fellowship is, is deeper and wider than e- anything that has ever gone before. And do you know that fellowship with God? As we think about how God wants to have fellowship with his people, do you know that fellowship with God? Is it real for you? Or are you just pretending? I don't know. I can't see into hearts. <laughs> but you'll know. And God knows. I'm sorry to be so bold but I need to ask do you have that fellowship with God fourthly forgiveness of sins I'm, I'm jumping to the end of, verse, of the passage we read At the end of verse 34 God says I will, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more and there's a couple of things to say about that Firstly, you might ask the question, and I certainly have asked that question, this question in the past. What is new about the forgiveness of sins? Wasn't it present in the Old Testament already? Isn't it implied in in all the sacrifices that Abraham and Moses carried out in the generations afterwards? Couldn't they just make the right kinds of sacrifices uh, at the right time and believe, therefore, that their sins are forgiven? And the answer is yes, of course, they could. You read through the book of Leviticus, and and I do recommend doing that every so often. Read through the book of Leviticus. And you'll see that time and time again, if they do these things, they will be forgiven. Sins were forgiven in the Old Testament. So what's so special about this new covenant? Let me read to you another verse from Hebrews chapter ten, verse eleven, about those sacrifices. And Hebrews ten eleven says this day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So Leviticus says that God will forgive your sins if you make the sacrifices. But Hebrews says the sacrifices don't take away the sins. Duh. (laughs) How do we square that circle? seems like a contradiction. How do we understand it? Well, like this. In the Old Testament, when you brought your sacrifices because of your sins, yes, God would graciously forgive you, but not because of those sacrifices. No, those sacrifices served a different purpose. The sacrifices served to point to what was yet to come. The one ultimate sacrifice. So the sacrifices themselves did not bring about forgiveness. But God graciously forgives nonetheless. So there, is a, there was a sense in which forgiveness could not be effected until Jesus Christ came and then the benefits of Christ could be applied backwards into history and God forgives sins because of the sign was point, what the sign was pointing to does that make sense so it's kind of like you're using you're buying something with your credit card but at some point in the future you've got to pay the credit card bill And that's what forgiveness in the Old Testament is like. You're forgiven for your sins now, and God passes over your sins. But at some point in the future, the sins have got to be paid for. And Christ comes and pays for the sins. So even in the Old Testament, your forgiveness depends on Christ. And you use the sign of the the animal to remind you that there's something else coming. So Jesus comes as the once-for-all-time sacrificial lamb. And the debt, credit card debt, as it were, is finally settled. So this is how God can forgive sins. This is how God can forgive sins in the new covenant. I will fans keep blowing my page the wrong way (laughs) I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more it applies in the new covenant in a way that had not applied in the old covenant up to that point so that's the first thing about that verse it's pointing actually to Christ coming and dying for sins and then the second thing about this verse you'll notice that the last sentence begins with that word for uh, or because, because I will forgive their iniquity. And it's that sentence at the end is the basis of what he's just said earlier. It's a bit of lingu- linguistics. <laughs> so what he's saying at the end is the basis for what he's just so- said a minute ago. Um, in other words, the forgiveness of sins and the remembering of iniquity no more is the basis for what he says about knowing God and having fellowship with him. And that's how we need to read that verse. Sometimes people read verse 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. As though anybody in the church can be a teacher, and nobody needs, nobody needs to listen to sermons or anything, because I, I just know God now. Um, that's actually misapplying the whole thing. He's actually talking about this closeness of fellowship with God that you have under the new covenant that actually doesn't require a human mediator like, like Moses or Abraham or somebody. You know, So the people wouldn't go to the mountain to be with God because it was too fearful. So they would send Moses off to do it and they would be safe down here. But now all of that's gone. Why? Because God has come in his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, he's human, but he's come as God. And now you can know God. You can have that personal relationship with God directly. It doesn't deny the need for teachers. That comes up in the New Testament. So it's not about that. It's about knowing God. You see, saints today have an access to God that the Old Testament saints could only dream of through the Holy Spirit, through Christ. So as we finish, let me finish. I should finish. What is the newness of the new covenant? Well, at root and in essence, the newness of the new covenant is not the personal experience that I may have and you may have it but the first and foremost thing about the new covenant is that Christ has come at last he has come in fulfillment of all of those promises that we've been looking at over the last few weeks that he has come and suffered and died and not simply for individuals but for a people a corporate body As I said, that's the importance of passages like Romans 5, 12 through to 21. That uh, Christ stands over a new humanity in contrast to Adam over the old humanity. And Christ comes for the body, for his body. And people are either in one body or another. Christ has only died for his people. And it's out of that saving work of Christ that the personal and corporate benefits come to us. Those new hearts, those new desires, those new priorities. That new fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the only way to have this. There is no other way to have a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. And true forgiveness of sins. Effectually won for us on the cross. Now definitively done for us. Through Jesus Christ. And so we, we can say. With Paul. As he thinks about Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises. God has made. They are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen. Is spoken. To the glory of God. The newness of the new covenant. It's all about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus came. That he finally came. And he suffered and died in the place of sinners. And is now the head, having risen from the dead, as the head of a new humanity. Which is called the Church of Jesus Christ. And we bless you for it. And thank you for this cosmic work that is being done has been done for our, on our behalf by Christ and is being applied by the Holy Spirit across the world. And we pray, therefore, that you would help us to see him and receive him, to have that new life in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.